Yes, it's me, Mike Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. It's the fastest, it's the friendliest, and it's for all the family. The Gas Shocks 116 Trophy and 120 Coupe Cup are the fastest growing race series in the UK, taking in six one-hour races and eight sprints at all the top circuits. Visit 116trophy.com to find out more and get yourself behind the wheel. I'd like to introduce to the Backseat Driver Radio Show, Gregor Marshall. Now, Gregor, Gregor, I suppose you could say, has two claims to fame. He is an accomplished racing driver. He has just written a book. But he is the son of the late, great Jerry Marshall. One of motor racing's, shall we say, most ebullient characters. Gregor, welcome to the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Thank you, thank you for having me here, and uh, thank you for the uh, the very kind introduction. I'm not sure about accomplished, but I am trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose when Dad was Jerry Marshall, um, it's one of those things. You, it must be not terrible, but it must be difficult to try and achieve the standards that your dad achieved. Because it's like I said, he was one of one of the racing's great characters. He won numerous awards. He won some serious races. He drove the famous Big Bertha, the uh, Vauxhall Fiorenza. Um, so, I mean, what was it like growing up with a dad like Jerry Marshall? Yeah, I mean, growing up with dad was wasn't always the uh, the easiest because he yeah you know, he was a character um, you know behind the wheel at the racetrack and you know also at home he could he could be a, a character as well <laughs> um, always getting up to mischief of some sort um, and you know I, I, growing up I always wanted to be like dad but I never wanted to um, copy what he did kind of thing I don't, you know he had such a, an array of uh, motor racing you know races wins cars etc um and so you know you can't copy someone like that but if i could achieve you know a percentage of what he he had achieved then for me that's what what i wanted to do yeah um but uh yeah that dad always saw it slightly differently you know he'd say to me well you know you won't be as good as me so why bother being a racing driver <laughs> and i'd say well you know because it's what I want to do and I enjoy it. and if I'm not as good as you I'll still be as good as most people Yeah. Um, and I think he saw it slightly differently that I should be a little bit more uh, uh, sort of not aggressive about it but um, uh, you know want, want to, to beat him but um, you know I, I knew that that would never happen and, and maybe maybe to a degree that is the difference between people that are you know professional successful sports people and people that, that aren't at the top of the game yeah I mean, people now talk about, like, Hamilton and Schumacher. I mean, Schumacher, to my mind, was, OK, he was ruthless, but Michael Schumacher, to me, and Senna were two of the greatest that there's ever been. Um, they talk about, all oh, they've achieved, uh, they're going to win their 100th race. I mean, your dad won 625 overall and class wins, along with numerous championships. I mean, that is a serious quantity of wins, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you know, Dad did um, just over uh, 1,400 races. So that's a pretty good strike. <laughs> one in two that he, that he won. Um, and, yeah, that was over um, a 40-year period. Yeah. So, you know, you're looking at sort of 15-odd wins uh, a year. Um, and that's against, you know, a high-class opposition. You know, it's not just little club events, you know, every weekend. You know, some of those are international events. Yeah. National Championships and yeah, you know, as you say, he, he won numerous championships. I think Dad won thirty 
31 championships, <laughs> um, which is pretty good going, really. I mean, that, that yeah. is that. Is, I mean, it puts into context the modern racing drivers, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, most racing has changed. In, I mean, changed during Dad's lifetime. You know, when Dad first started out, uh, especially back in the minis in you know sort of sixty three, sixty four. Yeah. You know, they, they literally, you know, they build a, an engine at home in the kitchen, um, hire a mini from one of the, the rental companies, put the, the engine in it, race it over the weekend, and then you know change the engine Monday morning, take the car back to the rental company. No, no one was any the wiser, um, unless there was any damage. But that obviously would have to be explained away. <laughs> um, so, yeah, because you, you didn't have, you, know, you didn't necessarily have to wear seat belts. Um, you didn't have the overalls. Yeah, you, know, you had a helmet. Um, you didn't have roll cages. You didn't have fire extinguishers. Mm. You know, those were all things that started to come in during the seventies. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, that that added cost to things. But by that stage, you know, Dad had become successful. You know, from, as, from a racing perspective and also from a business perspective, and that yeah, he could you know afford them. Whereas when he first started out, he wouldn't have been able to afford them. But you didn't need them, so it didn't no. really matter too much. And uh, you know, if you look at motor racing today. You know, the biggest barrier to entry for anyone to go motor racing, you know, it doesn't matter you know, what, what background you're from, it is cost. Yeah. You know, and it, and it, it tends to be cost of, of the safety equipment uh, and the equipment that, that goes in a race car. You know, it's, it's very, very expensive and does make it prohibitive. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. I mean, it's well known in the rallying world that back in the 60s, uh, people would hire a car, go and rally it, clean it off and give it back to the hire company on a Monday morning, having uh, yeah. possibly achieved a, a significant win in a, a major championship, but the car was stuck back there, or else they would, like you said, they would borrow them out of showrooms, <coughs> yeah. excuse me, race them, stick a different engine in, race them, do what they were doing, and then Monday morning it was all back to normal, all polished up and back up for sale again. Yeah, and it was always one of Dad's sort of um, strap lines for his his car business. You know, never raced or rallied. Yeah, <laughs> you know, to show that the car was in good condition. But I'm I'm sure a few of those might have been raced and rallied. who just didn't want to admit to it. Uh, is the as this mini as this mini always had all these ripples on the floor pan? Can I ask? <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, that's the one thing. He was a car dealer as well, wasn't he? Yes. Yeah. So um, yeah, Dad worked. Um, at, with a, a guy called Martin Lilly, who uh, most people might know as, as owning TVR in the 60s and 70s and yeah. early 80s. Um, and Martin um, and his family were you know, reasonably uh, wealthy. And Martin had a, you know, a collection of race cars and then decided to set up a business called uh, the Barnet Motor Company. Um, and Dad and, Bar- um, Dad and Martin were good friends, so, so Dad worked there um, as sales director and also as sales director of TVR. Um, then for whatever reason uh, which some of the stories have probably been embellished over time Dad and, and Martin went their separate ways uh, which I think was down to Dad writing off too many uh, TVRs on the road <laughs> um, but luckily it, it worked out for Dad you know, he, he, he started selling um, uh, racing bits Yeah. but then after a month or two he got picked up by Bill Blindstein um, to be the, the official sort of works Vauxhall driver in 67 um, and that was then his sort of his career from a racing perspective and also from a, a, a personal perspective um, sort of covered and then he, he just did a bit of trading himself from home uh, until about 71 uh, when he became very good friends with a, a guy guy called uh, John Wingfield yeah. and they then set up a business together in 72 called Marshall Wingfield 
um, and you know they traded in you know race cars and you know high end and exotic uh, cars. You know, and, and Dad was still trading up until literally up until the the day he passed away. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, after he passed away, one of the, the guys that bought a car from him um, needed the, the spare keys, which Dad hadn't been able to find. Which <laughs> I was able to for him. Um, so yeah, so yeah, Dad, yeah, he did do. A, you know, motor racing was his his main career, I'd say, through the seventies and eighties. Um, but then, you know, his secondary career with being a car, a car trader or dealer, um, that was always his sort of backup. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing is you mentioned uh, Bill Weidenstein, etc. I mean, your dad was known for his very ebullient style, but he's best known, I think, for driving cars like Big Bertha, which was the V8 Holden Repco Vauxhall Ventura, and various other cars. There was Baby Bertha. Um, I mean... Though he wasn't exclusive to Vauxhall, that is where he made... That, I would say, is not where he made his name, but that's where I say he would say he came to the fore driving Vauxhalls. Yes, yeah, no, definitely. I mean, you know, I think people forget that Dad started off in minis, and, and minis were really his thing, which is quite strange when you, you sort of look at him back then, you know, six foot and... He was a know, big guy was your dad, wasn't he? Yeah, but he, he was six foot then, and he would have been around 17 stone, <laughs> uh, which wasn't really the best thing for a mini. Um, but he, he he raced um, uh, minis uh, and was picked up or went into partnership with a guy called Brian Claydon of New Tune. Yeah. Uh, and they, they raced in British touring cars and you know, had some very good results, you know, beating the, the works, broad speed minis. Um, and that really helped get the attention of, of Bill, uh, Bill Blindstein, because Bill had been, uh, he worked for, for Cooper. Um, and actually Bill had the first ever international race win in a Mini Cooper yeah. uh, at Spa. Um, so when Bill um, started racing Vauxhalls in sort of 64, 65, um, you know, it, it wasn't a works team, it was just Bill trying to get Vauxhall involved. And end of 66, 67, Vauxhall said, right, we'll, we'll be involved unofficially. Yeah. Um, and they wanted to work driver. And Bill knew that you know, it was too much of his time on the engineering side, so he wanted a driver. And he remembered Dad from the mini days and, and, and got Dad involved. Yeah. And it was quite, you know, from 67, it, it was tough. You know, the, the, the Viva then was a 1256. You know, it was, it was racing against the 1293 uh, Coopers, which were obviously, you know, well-developed, well-sponsored um, car, race cars, and they were quicker. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't until... Um, 69 when the the, the two litre viva gt engine came or the two litre engine came out and the viva gt was released that's when they could actually start going for sort of overall wins and then with the introduction of sort of special saloons um so they had some real success and i think that the other thing that worked out really well from especially in the very early 70s was television you know you'd always have you know someone like grandstand um showing live racing from brands hat from yeah hill um, and it was, it was, you know, Ford had the old adage of, you know, sort of win on Sunday, sell on Monday. And, you know, Vauxhall saw that and, and wanted wanted a bit of that business themselves. So, yeah, it worked very well uh, through the early 70s and then when the Forensas came out. And, you know, by that time, Vauxhall got involved with dealer team Vauxhall. Um, so the cars were better, you know, quicker cars, more well-developed, more professional. Um, and, yeah, had a, a lot of success, um, which was, you know, fantastic for Dad, fantastic for Bill and DTV, and also for Vauxhall. You know, you know, in the 70s, DTV really put Vauxhall on the map. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, I grew up in that era as such. I was in my early teens in the 70s. Vauxhall were not 
a brand that you would immediately associate with motor racing. I mean, everybody knew about the, the Fords and everything else. But if you looked at the road cars, there were the quick escorts and things like that. And it was only when Vauxhall, shall we say, took the humble Viva and then turned it into the Magnum with a 2.3 engine in it and the Fiorenza, the droop snoot, of course, I suppose you could say to a degree was the competitor to the RS2000s. Um, Vauxhall, to a degree, in the 70s, were playing catch-up with the established or the other established brands who already had a motor racing pedigree about them. Yeah, definitely. Um, You know, Vauxhall saw the success of Ford, and they really wanted to, you know, to sort of copy that. Um, as you say, the, the Viva GT started the sort of more sporty side of the, of the Vauxhalls, and then because just putting in, there was also, if memory serves, besides the Viva GT, there was the Brabham version of it. Yes, yeah, so the Brabham version was quite rare, and it was a it was a link up that Vauxhall had with with Jack Brabham. Um, and it was quite funny at the time. I always remember Dad saying to me there was a real sort of competitive edge between Brabham and, and um, DTV. Or at the time, it would have been Blindstein Engineering before, because DTV wasn't formed until '72. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was always like a, a them and us uh, scenario. And, and and to be fair, the the, the, the Blindstein cars were actually quicker than the Brabham cars. All right. Um, and yeah, they did. They did compete against each other a few times. Um, but yeah, it was it was really when Vauxhall homologated the two point three engine in seventy two. Yeah. But that's when Vauxhall started becoming more sporty and quicker. And then the, the Droop Snoop was uh, announced in seventy three. Didn't actually come out till seventy four. But at that stage, we then had the uh, you know the, the Suez fuel crisis. And, yeah. Um, you know, and that, unfortunately, that killed off the uh, the Droop Snoop Frenzy. You know, it was supposed to sell between five and ten thousand uh, units a year, yeah. and in the end, they only sold two hundred and four of them, or they only built two hundred and four of them. Yeah. Um, so it was a shame. You know, Vauxhall sort of missed missed out on that. But then, you know, the two point three Magnum Frenza, you know, they were you know throughout the mid seventies to the late seventies, they were very successful cars. I think the other thing I remember about them being the road going ones compared to the Fords, they were actually quite luxurious inside. They were rather nice. Yeah, they did lots of different specs. Um, you know, so you could get a more basic spec, or you could get a, a more luxurious spec. Um, and, and you know, Vauxhall looked at having. Uh, larger cars as well that were more sporty and you, know, you mentioned Big Bertha earlier which was a, a Vauxhall Ventura yeah that, which technically was their what you might call their equivalent of a Ford Cortina it was a four door family saloon yeah and, and Vauxhall uh, they had planned to launch uh, a V8 Ventura into the, um, the, the the English market in 73 and 74 um, but again because of the, the fuel crisis the, the car was dropped yeah. uh, which is one of the reasons why Big Bertha was only around for a short period of time um, because it was decided you know we, we, we've built this race car to advertise our Ventura V8 but actually we're not doing the Ventura V8 <laughs> so it's not really needed now the one thing that your dad was known about known for was being incredibly flamboyant and a crowd pleaser. Now I know we chatted once before, and you said, "Well, he only did that when he had when he was about a good half lap in front of everybody." Yeah. But I mean, he was incredibly stylish, wasn't he? When you watched him out there, I mean, I can remember seeing him as a kid. I mean, when he was, shall we say, putting on the show. He was sideways all over the place, but it was for the sheer joy of it all in many ways, wasn't it? Yes, I definitely. I mean, that, you know, when Dad first started out in, in the early 60s, you know, tyres were different, brakes were different, you know, 
the tarmac on the tracks was different and you know occasionally to get especially a mini to slow down a mini you'd get it sideways yeah um and the same when he then raced you know for people that remember the lotus land and the tvr griffith that he raced for barnet motor company again you'd get them sideways um and i always remember dad saying it was he went to spa in uh, 1971 and he got to do a lap round spa the old spa circuit yeah the proper um, the proper one the proper the, the, the proper masculine one yeah <laughs> um he, he did a lap with a, a an ex-racing driver turned journalist called paul ferrer oh yeah uh, and paul had won le mans and i think he might have even done a few formula one races and he said the thing that he learned was just how smooth Paul was. Yeah. And that really made him think about his, his racing. Uh, and from that day onwards, he was then always incredibly smooth. And you know, whenever Dad was trying, he was really neat and tidy. But if he knew that he was going to win a race, he would put on a show. You know, he'd get the car side. You know, Dad had fantastic car control. Yeah. Um, and he'd get the car sideways. And yeah. I'd say to Dad, you know, why, why would you like that? And it was really for you know for the fans. You yeah. know, Dad, <clears throat> Dad always felt he was incredibly lucky to be paid to do something he loved doing. Yeah. Um, but he also appreciated that without the fans, you know, without people buying the cars, without people you know paying to go into the circuits, without the marshals volunteering their time, he wouldn't be able to race. So he always wanted to make sure that he put on a show for the people that were there and, and, and were, to a degree, paying his wages kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there, and there were times where, you know, he over-exaggerated things. There's always, you know, sort of famous stories of, you know, Dad would have a, a lap lead, come into the pits, get out of the car, kick the tyres, get back in, <laughs> still go out and win the race. <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were all things that he did because he wanted to entertain people. Yeah. Um, which was quite, you know, which wasn't like Dad as a person. You know, at, at home he wasn't like that at all. You know, he wasn't flamboyant. Um, but you know, when it came to motor racing, and especially when it came to being on track, yeah, he was yeah a different person behind the wheel. I mean, I dare say, doing something like that would have given his uh, would have given his team and crew absolute kittens, wouldn't it? it yeah, definitely, definitely. I think there was a, a few discussions about it sometimes. But they, <laughs> yeah, they. they yeah, they also saw the benefit of it, you know, because it was something that people would talk about. And, it, you know, as I say, there's no such thing as bad publicity. You know, so people were talking about, oh, you know, do you see what Jerry Marshall did? You know, all of a sudden it's then talking about the Vauxhall, DTV. So it all, you know, it's all, um, you know, helping the, the brand, so to speak. Well, doing things like that, all the cameras, be them the stills of the television cameras, would be on him, wouldn't they? And, of course, as soon as they were on your dad, they'd be on the car, they'd be on the Vauxhalls. Exactly. So, you know, at the time, DTV were you know, sponsored by Castrol. You know, so it was all good, you know, good publicity for, for everyone, really. Now, um, but it's like you once said to me that when the, when the race started, until he got his lead, he was a very serious and, shall we say, conventional racing driver. He only became flamboyant when he knew he had the the lead, etc. He was a he was yeah. he was a quite a conventional racing driver to start with. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, you know, he, 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 as I said, he, you know, he, he learned so much from Paul Frere and, you know, being neat and tidy. And it was something that he always, you know, impacted or, you know, tried to sort of impact on me that, you know, it's all about smoothness. You know, you're not having jerky inputs into the steering wheel, not unsettling the car under braking and cornering. You know, it's all about being smooth. And sometimes, you know, you can be smooth with a four-wheel drift, um, you know, and sometimes it is all about momentum. It really depends on the car. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on the tyres. 
you know, when Dad started in the 60s, you know, everyone was on sort of cross plies, which, you know, aren't the, 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 the grippiest of tyres. Well, they teach you uh, how to drive. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, there's a lot of movement. Um, but then when, you know, I mean, British touring cars or British saloon cars, as it was called in the 70s, you know, they were on slicks and that would be a completely different way to 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 drive um so it just really depended on on the type of car but he was definitely always smooth and one of the things he'd always say to me is, is about being mechanically sympathetic on on a car yeah yeah you know, there's so many times people would say to dad well you know you must be hard on a car and he'd say not at all and he, he would go out of his way not to be hard on a car and i think that shows that you know it's out of the sort of 1420 races he did there, there was less than sort of 60 retirements through damage to cars yeah uh, or through mechanical damage, um, uh, which is, you know, you think about it, it's pretty uh, amazing, really, because cars, you know, we spoke about earlier, cars in the 60s and 70s were less reliable than they are now. Yeah. Um, you know, th- th- things weren't as strong as they as they are, even, you know, from a racing perspective. Um, so, yeah, he, he was always mechanically sympathetic, always very smooth, neat and tidy. Um, but, you know, when he needed to be or when he wanted to be, rather, yeah, he would be sideways and flamboyant. And, you know, that, that absolutely, he loved off-road stuff. And so, so many times we, we'd go to the local um, sort of common near where he lived yeah. when I was a child. And, we, you know, he'd have a little Suzuki Jeep, which I used to drive and, you know, just do things like, you know, off-roading. Because um, it would teach you about being smooth and you know and, and car control, um, and that was definitely something he was always very uh, conscious. Not necessarily conscious, but he would always impact on other people, especially through any tuition that he would do with people. Yeah, you know, to, to be smooth, to be sympathetic, uh, and, and you know, do all the all the sensible things. <laughs> Now, the one interesting thing is you mentioned Paul Ferrer, the journalist. I mean, your dad wrote. He was he, he became a motoring journalist at one point, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. So from um, 1971, uh, Dad had a regular column in, column in uh, Car and Car Conversions, uh, which he had from 71 to 74. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, I've got, I've got all the columns and some of them are so funny. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's written, yeah, it's talking about his motor racing, but also his business through Marshall Wingfield. Yeah. Um, talking about all the stories from the, the bar after the racing. And actually the racing probably gets very, very little comment compared to the... Well, I suppose just butting in, I suppose that uh, the, the, the boys, etc. His, uh, his first biography was only here for the beer. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so he wrote for Triple C till. 74 then he wrote for motor magazine um and then in the late 70s he wrote for autosport and and had a a regular column in autosport which again was uh, was probably a bit more focused on the motor racing but again very very funny at times yeah um and then yes so in 78 his biography only here for the beer came out um and he also released uh, another book called competition driving uh, and the reason he named it competition driving was that was actually um, the name of a book that Paul Frere had written. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that shows how much of an impact Paul had had on him. Um, so, yeah, he wrote a few books and, uh, you know, lots of magazine columns. Um, and it was something he actually really enjoyed. You know, Dad, Dad loved reading and he loved he loved motorsport history. I mean, you know, at home, Dad had a library that was just full of motor racing books and, and, and car books and anything automotive. Um, so, you know, he loved writing, he loved reading and, um, you know, so that hopefully everyone that reads the columns that he, he wrote at the time remember them fondly. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, if you look into your dad, besides circuit racing, he didn't do badly as a rally driver either, did he? No, no, he did very well in rallying. He, he, he absolutely adored rallying. 
Um, and it was something <laughs> he wanted to do more of, but he always said that when he got old and slow uh, on the circuits, then he'd go rally. <laughs> uh, but he never got old and slow. Um, but yeah, so he, he, when when Vauxhall got more involved in motorsport in '72 through um, DTV, um, they had the racing side looked after by uh, Bill Blindstein, and the rally side was looked after by a guy called Chris Coburn. They started race or started rallying the the, the Magnum Forenza. Yeah. Um, so for '73, uh, Dad was um, the, 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 there was a, an event called the Tour of Britain. Oh yeah. Which was a which was a mixture of race and rally stages, um, and Dad was going to do that. And a couple of months, well, about six weeks before the event, there was a rally called the Gearbox Rally, which which Fox had built Dad a, um, a friend especially for. Yeah. Um, and Dad actually wrote it off on the first night and uh, broke broke a couple of ribs and uh, was hospitalised overnight, which yeah. didn't go down very well. No. So um, Fox actually said to Dad, "Well, no, we you know we don't want you doing the Tour of Britain because you know you're not a rally driver, you're a racing driver." Yeah. Um, so Dad was you know he was disappointed to miss out on that. So, and that event was the first one was actually run won by James Hunt in a, a Camaro. Oh, right. So, for 74, uh, Dad, again, he, yeah, he wanted to do the Tour of Britain um, and said to Vauxhall, look, you know, I want to do it. Is there a car for me? And they said, no, you know, you're not a rally driver, you're a racing driver. So, Dad said, well, okay, well, can I have the weekend off? Um, and he actually entered an Opal Commodore um, sponsored by Marshall Wingfield yeah. for um, the ex-Formula One world champion, Denny Hulme. Oh, yeah. Um, so Vauxhall agreed yep you can have the weekend off what they didn't know was uh, one of dad's very good friends was uh, Roger Clark yeah and Roger and Tony Mason uh, uh, then invited dad to be part of a second car team or to be part of a two car team in the second car uh, in the RS2000 Mark 1 Escort uh, for Ford Motor Company yeah Um, so dad and Roger uh, they were nose to tail through the whole event uh, and I think in the end, Roger won by eight seconds. Yeah. Dad was second overall. Uh, and Dad actually beat Roger over the famous Epint rally stage, yeah. uh, which one of his, you know, very pr- proud about. Um, but yeah, Vauxhall were very happy about that. Um, but they, they, so for 75, they gave him a, uh, they did actually give him a, then a Magnum to, to have a go in. Uh, and he did also did 76. Um, he did the, Manx rally a couple of times. Um, he did the Welsh Dragon rally in a in a Chevette uh, in the late seventies as well. Um, it was something that he really enjoyed doing, and you know he was very successful with. Um, but motor racing was his his passion. Yeah. Um, and what he could never understand, and you know he, he sort of went on record saying, "I I don't understand these rally drivers. You know, hey, why would you want to spend a, a, a weekend in a next to a dark smelly man um, but also you know for DTV you know they, they spend all these weeks building a, a beautiful uh, car and then they it just gets smashed up at a rally uh, <laughs> he, he, never, he never saw the point of that um, but no he did he enjoyed it and yeah so yeah Roger was one of his Roger Clark was one of his best friends um, and yeah dad you know he did love rallying and it was, yeah, it's a shame he didn't do more actually yeah now you, you yourself are a racing driver I mean as you grew up, how much advice did your dad give you? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I, I'm a, a racing driver from a f- professional perspective, but it's definitely something I, I try my hardest to do. Um, advice-wise, yeah, I mean, dad was, 
he would give me advice, especially when it came to driving generally. Yeah. From a racing perspective, yeah, he didn't really want me to get involved. Um, yeah, he'd seen so many of his friends push their children into racing when they weren't really interested. Yeah. Um, and there was still the danger side of it as well. Um, you know, obviously I, you know, I was born in '77, so you know, growing up in the, the early '80s, it was it was a lot safer than it had been, but there was still a a danger aspect. Um, and you know, I was always quite a big child you know I'm, I'm six foot three six foot four now yeah um so karting and single seaters weren't really my thing you know I, I, I sort of struggled to fit in them <laughs> um, but yeah i mean at any time i was in a car with dad you know dad would always tell me tell me what i was doing wrong yeah um and i was lucky over the years especially you know in the 80s and 90s that you know if dad was testing somewhere or even at a race circuit after a race you know we, we would always go out on track yeah um you know a number of times i did a, a sort of victory parade lap with dad after a race win um or you know and i'm sure some of the circuit owners probably wouldn't like me repeating these stories but you know at the end of a, a, a racing event when the race circuit was still left open we used to dad would take me out on the circuit for yeah. a lap or two <laughs> um and generally generally going anti-clockwise which was always uh, an experience because you're you're used to racing a circuit clockwise and yeah. then you go around it the uh, the opposite in the opposite direction it's a very different circuit um but i think you know that especially in latter years when you know I, I started driving yeah and i was pushing to to go racing um it was such an expensive sport to get into um, which and, st- regrettably it still is and yeah, I mean it's even more expensive now. Um, and you know, Dad over the years, you know, Dad made a lot of money from from business and motor racing, but he also spent a lot of money on business and motor racing. Yeah. Um, so you know, he didn't have the money to help, and you know, also he he looked at you know that his father didn't help him get into motor racing. So you know, why should he help me? And you know, if I was that interested, I'd do it myself. Yeah. Um, but I did need his, his, not necessarily his his help financially, but his guidance because you know he'd done, he'd been there, he'd done it. Plus, he knew everyone as well, and I didn't want to go down a route where I'd made a mistake. I'd much rather that he supported me. Um, but it just, you know, for whatever reason, it wasn't something that he um, he sort of fully supported. Yeah. And as I said, yeah, he said, you, you, yeah, you'll never be as good as me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what do you race? So I've, I've got my own racing car, which is a, a 1974 uh, Vauxhall Forenza Droop Snoot, yeah. uh, which is one of the uh, original 204 Droop Snoots. Um, and I race that in classic uh, touring cars, classic Group 1. Has it any connection um, to your dad at all? It's got no history with dad. Um, I did. I have sort of chased its history, and, and I know where you know who supplied it originally, and who yeah, and I've got it the subsequent owner history. Um, but yeah, I've, I've built it uh, with you know with advice from dad, from you know sort of articles and, and other things that I've seen talk to people about Magnums, Forenzas about, uh, and also from people like Bill Blydenstein. Um, you know, he, he was very kind to, to help me with, with advice before he sadly passed away. Um, so yeah, and I, I race. I don't race it as much as uh, as much as I'd like to. Yeah. Um, but again, time and money. Um, and this year, I mean, over, over the last few years, I, I've I've been offered drives by other people in their cars, and I've you know, been very lucky to to drive some really you know special cars over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, and I'm also really this year. Um, I've been racing a a 1959 Mark One Jaguar Saloon, uh, which is actually a car that Dad raced 
this very car yeah. in 1977, uh, the year I was born. I suppose uh, when you're behind the wheel of that, you sit there and think, don't cock this up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, the, the, the gentleman that owns the car now, Simon Lewis, um, lovely guy, and I'm so, yeah, I can't thank him enough for asking me to, to share the car with him yeah. in two driver races, and um, it's been, you know, been lovely, but it, also for me, it's lovely to sit in the car and think, you know, my dad raced this, yeah. you know, and it's, but yeah, there is also the, well, it's the thought of you know don't don't make a mistake don't don't mess this up but you know as soon as the uh, the, the lights go out you, you you try not to think about that and you know if you if you do think about it then you know it's probably the wrong wrong thing to be doing. <laughs> now the only thing is you've uh, just or you you've just written or you've been involved with a book on your dad. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, uh, I, I, um, I approached Haynes because Haynes actually published um, Dad's original biography, um, and that came out in 1978. Now, you know, obviously, Dad didn't pass away till 2005, yeah, and and did a hell of a lot in that time, probably more so than what he'd done up until publishing his biography. Yeah. So I wanted to, um, you know, update the story. And, and Dad's book, Only Here for the Beer, had become quite a, a sort of cult classic. Yeah. Um, but I thought, well, it'd be lovely to, you know, tell all of Dad's story. Um, and the other thing I wanted to do was, you know, a lot of people said, well, there's no way, you know, Jerry Marshall won 625 races. Yeah, I wanted to show that, you know, Dad did win 625 races. Yeah. So I approached Haynes with uh, a couple of different ideas of, of, of a book, um, whether it be a, you know, a sort of coffee table size photo book, uh, whether it just be a straight biography or whether it be like a, a scrapbook. Yeah. Um, and Haynes actually wanted to do all three. All right. Um, so so we, 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 we amalgamated it into sort of one big book. Um, obviously, I'd never written a book before. Um, so Haynes went, you know, they didn't want to sort of put all their eggs in one basket with me. So they said, well, if we do this... Um, like Jeremy Walton to be involved and, and Jeremy uh, is now a very accomplished writer yeah. um, and he his first book he ever wrote was only here for the beer um, with, with dad and um, he said yeah I'd love to be involved so yeah Jeremy and I wrote the book and it, it covers the whole of dad's life from you know growing up during World War to you know up until you know the day he passed away and it, it's it's about his motor racing it's about family <coughs> life it's about business it's about marriages and divorces yeah <coughs> um, and it's it's lovely you know i was really pleased with how it, it came out it's, it's a big book it's you know it's very nice to presented um and it came out a couple of years ago now um but it's you know we've sold you know it's sold really well and um yeah i've been re really pleased with the uh, the reception that it's had what's it called it's, it's a very imaginatively called Jerry Marshall, his authorised biography. Right. <laughs> um, we, we did look at lots of different names, you know, sort of, you know, martial art, martial force, only here for the beer too, all these sort of things. And we thought, actually, let's just keep it simple. Um, you know, and, and I think that, it, that was probably the right thing to do, to be honest. Is it still available? Can people still get it? Yeah, so Haynes, Haynes actually changed their their, their their sort of company set up a few years ago. They had obviously Haynes have got Haynes Manuals, um, and they set up also a publishing side just for sort of biographies and and more sort of motor racing uh, books. Yeah, uh, which they actually closed down um, a year or two ago, and they just kept Haynes Manuals. Um, so all of their old stock was actually bought by a company called Evro Publishing. Yeah, uh, and Evro um, now. Uh, um, 
uh, publish a lot of motor racing books so they can still be bought from um, from Evro directly um, or I, I still have some copies so if anyone wanted a copy that you know feel free to contact me directly and I could always uh, squiggle a signature in it if they so wish <laughs> <laughs> now one thing I have to ask I mean your dad your dad's passed away regrettably the the world is losing characters regrettably how much influence does your dad still have on you yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and, and it's probably something that I don't think about very often because it, it, he probably has more influence on me than I think. Um, I mean, from a motor racing perspective, you know, I, I, I'm a, I don't even be interested in motor racing because it's what, what Dad did. Yeah. Um, you know, so as a child, every weekend was away racing. Um, you know, and it was you know such an exciting sport to be involved in, and and you know I, I loved it, and I'm, you know I still do love it. So you know that's through Dad's influence. Um, obviously, some of the cars that I race are through Dad's influence. Um, I mean, you know, my, my next race in my Vauxhall Frenzer is uh, middle of October at Goodwood. Yeah. Um, in the Jerry Marshall Trophy. And, All right. You know, it's fantastic to be able to, you know, race at Goodwood is a fantastic experience as it, as it is um, but to race in a race named after dad um, against a lot of his friends competitors um, people that were fans of his um, it, it's you know it's incredible um, you know and I, I really you know I, I, I couldn't be more proud of, of dad um, but when I'm involved in something like that do you feel um, that do you feel the pressure driving in the Jerry Marshall trophy <laughs> um, yes and no um, again I think you know, I, I, you know, I think if you feel pressure or you're, you're scared about something, or when you're behind the wheel, you've got to be calm. You've got to be relaxed. Um, you can't think about it. You've got to be concentrating on, on what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, leading up to the race, I'll be tweaked up. Um, but as soon as the flag goes, you know, I'll be fine. Um, and it's yeah, you know, it's a lot of planning goes into it. Um, but it's lovely, and, and you know, Dad still has. He still has such an influence uh, in motor racing, whether it be in the UK or whether it be, uh, you know, internationally. You know, last year, I had a, I, I had a, a conversation with Tom Christensen. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and Tom Christensen, you know, obviously a Danish person, Mr. Le Mans. Um, you know, I, I would never know that Tom had any link to my father other than he was racing the Jerry Marshall Trophy. Yeah. Um, and I said to him, you know, I'm Gregor Marshall, Jerry Marshall's son. He said, oh, Gregor, you know, your father, he was a hero to me. Um, you know, I saw your father race. He came over to Jarland's Ringing in Denmark in 1977 when I was a little boy. And I got to see him race and he made a, a real impression on me. And, you know, I, I'm so pleased I can race in this Jerry Marshall Trophy. And, and to me, that was incredible, you know, because I wouldn't think Tom Christensen would, would have a clue who Jerry Marshall was. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, lovely for me. Um, and it just goes to show Dad's, um, you know, he influences a lot of motorsport. Um, and, you know, it, it, it does put more pressure on, you know, because he was very successful. He was a character. Um, and, you know, you can't be characters like Dad was and, you know, people that were his friends like Tony Lanfranchi, you know, they they would run, they would, you know, sort of run the roost at motor race events in the bar afterwards and yeah. everyone would know who they were and, you know, there'd be lots going on. Um, and you just can't do that in this day and age. It's, you know, it's a different time. It's a different era. Um, does it make the sport poorer for it? To a degree, yes, it does. Yeah. Um, has the sport changed? Yeah, everything's changed. You know, motor racing is a lot more um, uh, expensive now, and you know, the characters aren't 
aren't so prevalent, but they are there if you scratch under the surface. Yeah, but they they don't make an appearance that often, though, do they? No, no. We just in this social media um, age, you've got to be so careful with you know what you say, what you do. Yeah. You know, and you know, and you know, it's right, rightly or wrongly, you know. And I'm sure, you know, times have changed incredibly. You know, I watch old videos of Dad where, you know, after the race, he'd be presented with a, you know, a trophy with a, you know, a buxom young lady. And yeah. at the time, it's, you know, that, that, was, that was what it was, whereas, you know, times are different now. Yeah. Greg and Marshall, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Thank you very much for joining me on the Backseat Driver Radio Show. And it's been nice bringing your dad back to life if only for 40 minutes and it will give people who don't remember that era of racing uh, it'll give them just a brief insight as to what what I call proper motor racing and proper racing drivers are all about Greg and Marshall thanks very much for joining me on the Backseat Driver Radio Show Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it, and um, you know, I, I hope the listeners enjoy what they hear. And um, yeah, hopefully, it does bring back some some memories and, and also a little bit of insight into what what motorsport used to be like. <laughs> Once again, Greg and Marshall, thanks very much indeed. Thank you.